Hey there. Thank you for listening to Pod of Jake. I'm Jake. You can reach me anytime by emailing jake at blogofjake.com. You can also DM me on Twitter at 0FJake. I always love to hear from fans of the podcast, and your support of the show means a lot to me. This episode of the podcast is brought to you by AG1, the best foundational nutrition supplement on the market. You may have heard about AG1 by now and already decide you want to try it. If that's the case, go to drinkag1.com slash podofjake and order your first pack now. If you're not familiar, AG1 is a foundational nutrition supplement with 75 high-quality vitamins, probiotics, and whole food-sourced ingredients to support whole body health. I started drinking AG1 a couple of years ago because it seemed like the most high-quality, cost-effective way to get the vitamins and nutrients I need. Now I drink it almost every day before I eat or drink anything else besides water. It tastes good, makes me feel great, and sets the tone for a healthy day, all for about $3 a day. So if you're looking for a simpler, effective investment for your health, try AG1 and get five free AG1 travel packs and a free one-year supply of vitamin D with your first purchase. Go to drinkag1.com slash podofjake. That's drinkag1.com slash p-o-d-o-f-j-a-k-e. Check it out. Thank you, Aswath, for coming on and joining me on the podcast today. I really appreciate you taking the time. Uh, it's been a pleasure to you know, go through some of your podcasts and some of your writing in the past. And uh, I find you to be just a pleasure to listen to. Uh, very Obviously, you're, you're sort of niche on uh, valuation and corporate valuation and, and very focused on all of that. But just the general wisdom that I've gotten from a lot of your writing and podcasts that's sort of applicable across life has been very interesting. Um, so formerly, you're a professor of finance at the Stern School of Business at NYU, where you teach corporate finance and equity valuation. Uh, you're the author of several books on both of those subjects, and you've gained a reputation as the Dean of Valuation, which is a, a pretty cool nickname, I think. Uh, so for those who are not familiar with you, it would be great if you could start by telling your story from as early as you're willing to start to where you are today and talking about some of the decisions you made along the way. Yeah, I mean, I, I came to the U.S. from India in the late 70s to get an MBA. I mean, my pathway at that time was to get an MBA, get go to work and make a ton of money. But, um, you know, God has a way of changing your course. It was uh, the last semester of my MBA program that I became a teaching assistant. For a course, I didn't even enjoy teaching, you know, which is accounting. But I learned 15 minutes into my first session that this was what I wanted to do with the rest of my life, this being teaching. Now, teaching is my passion. Finance happens to be what I teach, but teaching is what, what excites me, what drives me. So it's, um, you know, right after that session, I walked up to the to the finance department and asked whether I could do a PhD because um, the only reason I wanted to do a PhD is not because I want to do research or be an academic, but because I wanted to teach. So I ended up, um, you know, getting my PhD at UCLA and going on to teach at UC Berkeley for a couple of years as I was finishing my PhD. And since 1986, I've been at NYU, and uh, you know, uh, and and I don't consult, I don't do, um, I don't do expert witness work, I don't do any of the stuff that, but um, perhaps is more lucrative, because to me, teaching is what drives me. 
what was it about teaching? You mentioned like 15 minutes into your first session as a TA, you knew this was what you wanted to do for the rest of your life. How did you recognize that so quickly? What was it in particular? No, I, I think we're each put put on the earth to do something meaningful. I mean, I, I that sounds profound, but I truly believe that there is a pathway that each of us has. And there are moments in our life where we get an opening saying, hey, here's your pathway, take it. We're all too busy. And in fact, I think one of the problems with the way the world has evolved is it's we're so busy, we can't look at those those God shots that you're getting saying, hey, take that pathway. I just happen to be lucky. And what, what it was about teaching that drew me is first, every teacher is a repressed actor. You've got, um, you've got an audience and they're a captive audience. And best of all, you get to review the audience rather than the other way around. And the second is, to me, teaching is about changing how people think about the world. That's what teaching is. It's not about giving grades. It's not about being you know, a fountain of wisdom. It's about changing the way, even by a little bit, their perspective on how they think about things. And I realized very early that teaching is one of the few professions, and I don't think of it as a profession, I think of it as a passion, where you can change the way people think. And I've spent the last 40 years essentially trying to alter people's thinking in good ways or bad ways. When you say good ways or bad ways, uh, I'm curious, like, you know, obviously you're teaching mostly within the subject matter of evaluation and, and corporate finance. Um, do you, are, are there certain things that you go into like a given semester? It's like, oh, these are sort of like my core principles of if I can get the stu- my students or some of my students to sort of change the way they think of the world just a little bit on this dimension or just a little bit on that dimension? Are there yeah, things I, within I, the I, subject or outside of it? When you say valuation in corporate finance, all of life is valuation in corporate finance. Name me one decision you make in your life that is not a financial decision. Okay? Deciding to have a child is a financial, uh, ultimately has financial implications. So to me, valuation in corporate finance covers everything around me. So this is not something related to publicly traded stocks and whether you can value NVIDIA. It's really about everything you do in life has a financial implication and valuation has extensions in there. So whoever signs show your Tani next year is going to make a huge financial decision. It's a valuation decision. So when you say valuation in corporate finance, it's everything. Life is is a series of financial implications. And you, have, you know, I, I talk about the tools you can use to make those judgments reasonably. And when someone comes in to your class without that perspective, thinking of this as, you know, just another sort of narrower subject and not realizing the implications on broader life, um, is there are there ways that you sort of get people to understand, like someone listening to this podcast right now who, you know, a lot of my audience is into technology, some are into investing, some not so much, and people who don't really understand, like, why do I need to care about this sort of thing? Is there something where you have to sort of bring people along or do most people come in with the appetite for that type of understanding? Well, they perhaps come in thinking valuation is all about publicly traded stocks, but every session when you talk about things happening around you, you effectively bring in corporate finance or valuation first principles work. So if I'd been teaching my class a few weeks ago when Michael Jordan announced that he was going to sell the Charlotte Hornets for what, $3 billion or whatever the price is, that would have been fodder for the class. We would have talked about what it is that drives the pricing of sports franchises. That's a valuation or a corporate finance decision. A few weeks ago, actually a couple of months ago, I talked to the Mets 
um, about uh, about corporate finance principles and in and, and, uh, and how they're ignored or violated in professional sports. And we talked about why that might be happening, corporate finance decision. So the way I try to bring them in is by looking around and saying, hey, let's talk about that uh, 20-year contract that you know so-and-so signed. And let's think about the corporate finance and valuation implications. You can't force it down people's throats. But if you see somebody applying these principles to talk about real-world questions that are around them all the time, after a while, they recognize how widely they can use these rules in decisions they make in everyday life. Yeah, well, I'm a big Mets fan for better or worse. So I hope that conversation went reasonably well. But um, I've heard you mention, you know, you're talking about the Mets now. You've talked about, uh, you've referenced Field of Dreams and sort of an Amazon analogy, Field of Dreams being the Kevin Costner baseball movie, for those who don't know. Um, you talked about Moneyball a little bit. Is baseball something, I just haven't heard it a few times referenced by you, is it something that you think about a lot or that sort of uh, you can often use as sort of an analogy in your teaching or anything like that? It's a sport I enjoy. It's a sport where, you know, numbers are very much a part of the sport. I mean, as long as it's been around. And for the longest time, people ignore the numbers and they let scouts tell them what to do. And that's what... I think made Moneyball so interesting was the fact that you had all this data that people were ignoring and using rules of thumb. And if you think about it, investing is very much like baseball, right? I mean, there, there isn't another discipline where there are more numbers around us. And there isn't another discipline where we ignore the numbers and adopt rules of thumb. A P ratio less than 10 is cheap. A price to book less than one is cheap. I mean, these are rules of thumb that we that we hold on to in spite of the fact that we have the numbers right in front of us. So in many ways, I think baseball and investing are very similar in terms of if we have the numbers, we ignore them, we do whatever we want to do and have a rule of thumb to justify it. And that, I think, is how we get into trouble. One thing as I compare the two, I think of like, you know, in baseball, you got to go up to the plate and you got to hit or you got to go out to the mound and you got to pitch and you can't fake it. You know, you are sort of who you are and you can do how you can do. And you might get lucky for a while and perform above what you sort of are uh, would, would be expected to perform like at that level or whatever. But in the markets, the markets can stay quite irrational. I would say you're more likely to have a company that's significantly overvalued for years and years and years than you are to have a baseball player who hits, you know, 500 for even a few weeks or, you know, a few months, if maybe they can do a few weeks. Right. Um, is that aspect of things, the fact that in baseball things sort of have to return to reality in a sense where, and not that it's not reality in the markets, but it's not sincere valuation. Do you think of that as like a major difference between the two? No, I think the way to think about it is every discipline requires some mix of skill and luck. The greater skill becomes a component of what drives success, the more mean reversion works. So if you're a ba if you're a ba basketball player, you know you go out and you try to hit a three. You can be lucky and hit the three, but you're not going to get thirty threes out of fifty. So the more a discipline is is skill driven, the more difficult it is for somebody to fake it. Investing, unfortunately, is more luck than skill. In fact, it's mostly luck. It's being at the right place at the right time. And I think as a consequence, many of the most successful investors you see out there are just lucky investors who happen to be at the right place at the right time.
I'm not suggesting every successful investor got lucky, but there are very few investors where you can point to skill as the driver. That's why I caution people, don't go chasing after a hedge fund manager who's delivered alphas over the last 10 years. Delivering alphas over the last 10 years, given how much luck dominates skill in investing, is mostly because of luck. So I think that in investing, you know, we need to be humble. Even when you succeed on an investment, attribute it to luck rather than skill. Because it's better, you're better off assuming that you just got lucky than that you that 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 you're skillful. Because assuming you're skillful can lead you to the most some of the most dangerous mistakes in investing. That seems like a very difficult thing to be aware of in others, let alone if in yourself like with yourself. Do you have right. any sort of concepts that are helpful for thinking about recognizing what components of skill are involved in the success of an investment or um, where luck, you can clearly sort of write things off to luck. Is there any way to evaluate that with any degree of confidence? Unfortunately, no. That's why I said, assume you're always lucky. Assume you're not skillful. You're better off making that assumption and working through life with that assumption than taking the opposite one. Which is, and, 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 and my advice in investing is given that you, you might just be lucky, do no, do no harm. One of the reasons I've always argued against concentrating your portfolio, big deal with value investing, right? By the five best companies, why would you want to ever spread your bets? Is because I'm not as convinced as those people are that I'm skillful. I'm more convinced that I'm lucky than skillful. So I'm going to spread my bets because that way, even if all I am is lucky, I'm not doing damage to myself by over-concentrating my bets, yeah, it's interesting, like you, um, you talked about in some of your like, core principles of valuation and investing, how, you know, obviously, you talked to the points of around diversification, but you also talked about how a lot of people mistake um, valuation to be sort of a, an exercise in accounting, which is fundamentally, you know, looking at the past versus forecasting, which doesn't only just involve the future as well as projecting out the numbers, but it's very critical that you have a story that ties together those projections and supports those projections. And at the end of the day, a story is sort of your um, idea and imagination, I guess, in, in some sense of what the future might be and, and what that how that story might play out, but the story hasn't played out yet. And there's so many factors that can influence that story, so many unforeseeable factors. Like, for example, if you were valuing Twitter a few years ago, you would probably bake into your assumptions that Jack Dorsey would be running the show for the next decade plus, uh, maybe not with like 100% conviction, but you have to make sort of certain assumptions in your valuation just to be able to do anything. And so you sort of assume Jack's going to be at the helm. You certainly don't assign a very high probability that he steps down anytime in the near future. And if you did assign that probability, it sort of wouldn't have been uh objectively supportable like that would have been sort of a lucky guess if you made a high probability that jack was going to step down soon and then furthermore there's almost no way you could have guessed that elon was going to take over and so any you know sort of valuation based on future projections and a story for twitter five years ago three years ago even i forget when jack stepped down exactly would have been you know very wrong um even though using the information available to you at that time you could have done sort of a very sensible job of writing that story does that seem like sort of a, a useful example in, in how to think about this? I, I'll give an even better one. Let's say you value Marriott. 
late 2019. You did everything you were supposed to do. Looked at the past, brought the tools of forecasting in, you know, listened to the management, and you projected out evaluation area. Five months later, the world would have changed under you. Why COVID hit? I mean, that's a, that's a small indication of how little you control the outside world. So when you tell a story about the future, it's always about the future. It's not just valuation. Investing is always about the future. That's why you know, being humble helps, right? Recognize that you're telling a story. Recognize the world can change under you and be willing to change your story. I, I, I find the word conviction to be a very dangerous one. It's, I know, touted about an investment. You've got to have conviction. You know, conviction is good in the sense of acting on your assessments. But conviction in the terms of holding on to your story as the world keeps changing around you, that's not conviction. That's sheer stupidity. You know, that's hubris to assume that your story will hold as the world changes. So investing is all about the future. and The future is built around a story. But that story has to be adapted to whatever's happening around you. So tell a story, value a company, make your decisions, and be willing to revisit your story. Right. And I know you sort of uh, notoriously revisit your stories and your valuations year after year. Amazon, for example, you've been valuing mm -hmm. since 97. Um, how much do you sort of carry? Like, it's very hard just as a human to get a fresh look at something. You sort of will develop your biases and your relationships with how you think right. about a company and whatnot. Do you try to go in every year with a blank slate? Are there certain things you carry over and certain things you decide, you know, I need to really go back to the drawing board on this? How do you make that sort of evaluation, especially when you're doing the quantity of valuations that you're doing year in and year out? I, I think it's impossible to be unbiased as a human being, except the fact that there's bias. Be honest with yourself about that bias and try your best to, to create a fresh slate. It's impossible to do after 25 years of adding Amazon. I have my biases. I know what those biases are. I try to write those biases down before I even tell a story. You know? And I think that's all you can do in, in statistics. There's a branch of statistics called Bayesian statistics, where you state your priors before you run a study. And in investing in valuation, I think it would behoove us to do the same thing, is to state our priors, what we think about a company, its management. Now, I, I run an exercise in my class where I ask people what they think about Elon Musk. Do they like the man or do they dislike him? And then I say, look, if you value Twitter, if you tell me what you think about Elon Musk, I can tell you, or if you value Tesla, if you would tell me what you think about Elon Musk, I can tell you what you're going to find out in your Tesla valuation. Your biases are going to drive your valuation. There's nothing good or bad about it. What makes it dangerous is we act like we're objective. We act like we're scientists. Now, we have to accept the fact that we're not. We're human beings. We're going to be biased, and those biases are going to manifest themselves in our investing in valuation. When you look at a company like Tesla or some of these large companies that come with such a uh, prevalent narrative sort of out in public versus a lesser known company that's no one's tweeting about and fewer people are talking about. Is it more difficult to take an objective lens to the more sort of hyped companies, the more popularly talked about companies than it is to go in and look at a company that's 
fairly, you know, just under the radar in terms of not necessarily valuation. It could be overvalued for all that it matters, but it's not something that sort of has as much of a media defined uh, story. I think it's not that there's a narrative. There are multiple narratives. What makes Tesla tricky is we're not sure what the narrative is. Is it a car company? Is Is it an energy company? Is it an everything company? Nobody's quite sure. And that's what makes it so interesting is you have dueling narratives leading to very different end games, which is one reason with Tesla, you have people who think it's absolutely the greatest company to ever walk the face of the earth. And at the same time, it's also the most, one of the most shorted stocks of all time. There are people who are convinced that the whole thing is a scam. I think it is true that there are companies which have much narrower, much more focused stories, and they're easier to value. Now, I'll give you an example. You're an engineering construction company. There are quite a few of these companies, and that's all you do. It's much easier to value. You have a focus. I can see what you're doing. Companies where I have to constantly think about what could this company do differently? And that's what's made the big tech company so interesting is you know that they can do other stuff. Now, whether they will do them well or badly, and that makes these companies always difficult to value because you don't know where the story ends or whether they can be expansion story. I own Facebook and I'm wrestling today with what the Threads business will do to Facebook as a company. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it'll add value or destroy value, but it'll clearly change the story for the company. So some companies are easier to value because the stories are less ambitious, they're more focused. Other companies are more difficult to value because the stories are more expensive. You don't know where they could end up. And when you hold companies in your portfolio, like, uh, you know, say if, if you were holding uh, Meta right now and they just released threads and their story is quite different. And not only that, but, you know, a few weeks ago, Apple came out with the VR headset and that changes Meta's story probably to some degree as well in terms of the competitive dynamics in that space. And let's say you have this sort of sitting in your portfolio. Um, do you, I know you sort of have a regular cadence for doing valuations, but do you also do sort of off cadence valuations or how do you match up when it's time to consider a potential action, whether that's a buy or sell based on the changing of a story that may be sort of intra cadence and it's all, you know, stories, whether it's big or small are probably changing all the time. You know, these are, these happen to be sort of large changes to Meta's story that I just mentioned, but there's smaller ones that are happening all the time. It's just impossible to keep tabs on all of this. Is there some sort of like threshold that you try to have a sense for or anything that sort of says, hey, this is a time where I want to revisit this. It's a potential action, not to say that I need to buy or I need to sell or I want to buy or I want to sell, but it's worth evaluating at this point for a potential action. I think this is where having a market price helps, right? Because for me, the trigger that I need to look at a company often is the market reacting you know, to, an, to an action. No. You can see the market doesn't think threads is going to make that much of a difference to Facebook's value. It's not like Meta's value jumped 50% yesterday or that the virtual reality set is going to make or break Facebook. doesn't mean that the market is right, but that often is a good indicator. On, uh, now I'll give you an example, right? Revisited evaluation almost instantaneously when uh, Facebook came out with that earnings report, what is it, a year and a half ago, where they talked about the metaverse and the stock price completely collapsed. 
I viewed that as a re reason to revisit the valuation saying, am I missing something? Because I own shares in Facebook at the time it happened. I went in and revalued Facebook and was convinced that the market was overreacting. So I doubled my holding. But often having a market price is a good indicator of when you should take another look. The market jumps a lot in either direction. It may be a good enough reason to take another look at your company and say, am I missing something in the company? Should I be adding to my holding, reducing my holding? And that, I think, is um, the advantage of uh, investing in publicly traded stocks. The market does provide some feedback. I'm not a pricer. I'm not a trader. It's not that I'm going to track the market but it gives me a good indication as to when I should be revaluing a company. Yeah, I see that as um, it's interesting because you're sort of being your, your timing in a sense is reactive to the market. Not that that's a good or a bad thing, but you're seeing the large change in price on news. Uh, and so in this case, with the recent events with Meta, no recent price jumps, maybe no immediate need to reevaluate. But with the former example that you mentioned um, with their earnings report and the price tanking, that was sort of a call to action for you to go and reevaluate. But at that point, it's already, you know, the price has already crashed and you went in your, your valuation and determined that the market was likely overreacting and that change in price and the value hadn't changed that much. And therefore you can sort of take advantage of this price crash to double down or to buy more. But had you come out of that valuation with the realization or, or the opinion that the valuation had indeed taken a huge hit, the market's yeah, already just... moved. So mm -hmm. Yeah, so how do you sort of think about that time? Well, you still element? have a value and a price, right? So the question is how much has it moved? The advantage of a value is you're not just directionally getting a change. You're getting a change in the value. So let's say your value dropped by 30%, but the price dropped by 50%. It's undervalued, right? It's So it's not, so you're not just, see, you don't make money on valuation per se. You make money on market mistakes, the difference between price and value. That's when people say, I'm going to buy a well-managed company. They're missing the point. A well-managed company that's already priced in that good management, there is no payoff. In fact, I have a chart where I basically look at what you think about a company and what the market thinks about a company. So let's say you think a company is awesome, but so does the market. There's no payoff investing in that company. If you think a company is below average, but the market thinks it's abysmal, that's a good investment. So to me, investing is about finding mismatches. And that's why, you know, even if you're a true believer in intrinsic valuation, you've got to track the market. You've got to understand the pricing. You have to understand what's driving the pricing. And, um, you know, understanding one half of that equation is not going to get the, 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 the story done, the investing done. You've got to understand both sides of the story. When you look at, some of these stocks that over the last several years or a few years have sort of moved somewhat irrationally, I think people would say like a GameStop or an AMC, some of these like meme stocks or in the crypto world, like meme coins. Um, what's your, you know, is that something like I haven't sort of been, you know, paying attention on investing or frankly, I'm not really old enough to understand whether, or at least I haven't like studied the history enough to understand whether these themes uh, are sort of coming back from having been here in the past in some form, just with a different name, or if these are somewhat novel um, aspects of, you know, perhaps arising from the fact that we have the internet, which for example, like allows people to, um, you know, align better. You saw the people on Reddit sort of coming together to 
drive the valuation or drive the prices of those stocks way up and um, all these crypto coins that are coming up with communities and things like this. Is this a new phenomenon and what do you make of it or um, any sort of similarities to things you've seen in the past or still sort of wrapping your head around it a little bit? Let's face it, people price things, they don't value them. Most people base their decisions on what to buy or sell because they're trading. They trade, they want to buy at a low price and sell at a high price. Don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with doing that. It's as, it's as old as markets. You know, I think so what you might see in GameStop has happened for as long as time. As, as long as people have been buying and selling stuff, they've been basing it on mood and momentum. What's different is social media has made that mood and momentum effect much stronger. So I think, the, uh, you know, there are stories about the South Sea bubble in the, in the, in the 1600s. And the way you spread a rumor is you acted like you were drunk. You went into a pub. And you spouted out something about a stock and they say the South Street stock, nobody knows it and I'm not supposed to talk about it, but it's going to go up tomorrow. And then you went on your merry way and then other people in the pub listened to you and they went and bought the stock. Think of Reddit as your modern day equivalent of that pub. You're not talking to 50 people in the pub, you talk to 50,000 people and you can see very quickly how momentum can take on a life of its own. So this has always been with us, but the, the effects are much stronger in both directions. So it's not going to mean these stocks are always going to go up, but this, when they come down, they're going to come down at a speed that you would not have seen 100 years ago, 50 years ago, or even 30 years ago. It's just made trading much more, I, I think, more successful when it works and more unsuccessful when it does, much more volatile from that perspective. Yeah, it's interesting because there's sort of uh, you mentioned like this order of magnitude difference between the pub and Reddit, for example, and that order of, ma you know, and that's maybe more than an order of, order of magnitude, 50 people to 50,000 people or even 500,000 yeah. people, whatever it might be. Those are like huge, huge changes. And it might be the same sort of element that's at play, but the quantity and the scale of the thing is sort mm -hmm. of of a totally different beast. And so I wonder, you know, you've been, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but while you respect the people who are more so focusing on trading and price versus investing in value, you've always been more on the investing in value side, but by a landslide. And um, do you think that that changing dynamic in just the world, given, you know, that you just couldn't possibly hold up a microphone to 500,000 people in an instant? so many years ago. I mean, you could be on TV, I guess, in a popular station or something like that, but you couldn't start sort of just as some guy on Reddit and start some sort of huge momentum swing uh, from your living room in, you know, Wisconsin or whatever it might be. Um, and does that shift in just how the world is change possibly the sort of, um, you know, we talked about like the the disproportionate effect of luck on investing earlier and obviously there's a lot of luck involved on price and trading side of things as well do you think that those um sort of ratios may have changed or be changing uh where either trading and price or investing in value those sides of the equation one sort of may have increased in the amount that you can have sort of like a skill advantage versus the other if that makes sense where one didn't used to involve so much luck 
and now it involves a lot more or one didn't used to involve so much skill and now there's potential to get more advantage on the skill side, if that makes sense? I, I think investing now requires a stronger stomach than it used to, a longer time horizon than it used to, and more spreading of events. It goes back to the point I made earlier. Maybe 40 years, we, you could have just bought the five best stocks and held on and not, not felt too much damage, at least in the U.S., as an equity investor. I don't think I, I, I don't think you can do that anymore. As an investor, you got to accept the fact that the world has become, I like to word, use the word noisier, reflecting the fact that lots of things happening that are not in your control has become a noisier place. On the trading side, I think you're going to see more short-term success on the part of people who just get lucky, who then get fooled into believing that they are successful and then putting it all on the line and losing it all. So we've increase the dangers to both investing and trading. I think the world has become a much more dangerous place for both sides of this equation. And I think we therefore need to, you know, be, be and, and I'll go back to what I said before, do no harm. You know, there, you know, so when somebody says, should I buy an index fund? I say, you know what, for most people, that's not a bad idea because, you know, you've got a life to live and this may not be the way you want to spend your life, you know, investing or trading in stocks. Now, my worry is that there are people who trade, they make money, then they publicize the fact that they've made money and they try to teach other people what they think is a skill when in fact, all they got was luck out of this. And I think that that danger has increased and you see it all around, especially with people who are 30, 35 years old, putting half their money in GameStop and then losing it all and then wringing their hands saying, what did I do wrong? Now, what you did wrong was you played a momentum game and it blew up on your face. So I think that risk has increased a lot more because of uh, social media and the momentum effect getting stronger. Yeah, it's, um, you know, you talk about diversification and it feels to me early on without having lived through, I think like you, you can read a book and everything, but to live through having made certain investments and having lost money and having made money and recognizing a lot of that's luck, but thinking about what aspects of it might have been skill and whatnot experience i think has its own sort of level of of teachings in a way at least for me um and i'm fairly early on but it feels to me and i think a lot of my friends and people i talk to would sort of agree that it feels very difficult to diversify not that it's hard to obviously buy an index fund versus um you know put all of your money in tesla or something like that but it feels like there's an increasing number of variables. And what I mean by that is um, it used to be, uh, at least it seemed that it was sort of a safe bet to assume yeah. the U.S. was going to continue as the number one you know, power in the world or that um, you know, gold was the hedge against inflation or um, you know, various that the banks you know, would, would hold on to your money safely and you didn't have to worry about it. But you see, you know, the U.S. sort of feeling a little bit more shaky with China emerging and the rest of the world is doing everything that the rest of the world's doing. And then you see Bitcoin coming to the stage and it's like, well, and technology coming up and it's like, well, maybe we could mine asteroids for gold and maybe the supply of gold isn't as fixed as people have always assumed it to be. Um, and then uh, what was the last example of oh, the banks you see, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, and of course, bank failures have happened in the past, but um, there are certainly, I think, 
very top of mind for a lot of people now, moving their money from smaller banks to JP Morgan or the like to try to um, protect their or even diversifying their money across multiple banks. And you have these financial services that are coming along and saying, we'll spread your uh, treasury for companies across all of these different banks so that you could take advantage of the FDIC insurance. And um, you don't have to, you know, you're not just diversifying your equity holdings, you're diversifying where you're holding your cash. And perhaps you should even be diversifying what currency that cash is, whether it's US or Chinese or some other country or Bitcoin. Um, so it seems like there's so many things to diversify on. How do you sort of it seems complex. And for someone who's just 25 years old and starting to save a little bit of money and wants to, you know, sincerely just do no harm and sort of do something that they don't have to become an expert investor on, but they can just do something that feels safe. How do you like even survive in sort of the, the world that we have today? How do you think about the first steps of even doing anything to protect your money? I mean, it's, you know, much of what we've been taught in investing was learned in the 20th century in the U.S. In investing in finance had their birth as disciplines in the U.S. And in the 20th century, the U.S. was the most mean reverting economy and market of all time. Things always reverted back to the way they used to be. And many of the investing rostrums we were taught in the 20th century reflected that mean reversion. I'll give you an example. One of the traditional value investing recommendations is you go back and look at Ben Graham is buy stocks that trade at low PE ratios. You know what implicitly drives success there, right? If low PE ratio stocks revert back to the average PE for sector, buying low PE ratio stocks will make you money. And in the 20th century, it worked. Or another rostrum you've been told, stocks always win in the long term. And they did in the US in the 20th century. We've got to recognize that the world is now, you know, the U.S. is not the global economy. It is a big part of the global economy, but there are multiple large economies. There's less that you control. There are more macro factors that drive your investing that you don't control. My advice to people is don't make it neither or. So don't make it, do I buy an index fund? Do I buy Tesla? When you start, why not put 90% of your money in an index fund and 10% in a stock that you really love? That way you're not going to do damage to yourself. And as you get confidence and as you get more wealth, you can start to move from that 10% individual stocks to 20 to 25 to 30 to 35%. And eventually you might be all in stocks, but by the time you get there, you've got 25 or 30 stocks. Remember, diversification doesn't require that you own a thousand stocks. 25, 30 or 35 stocks is diversified enough, but it's tough to get there from zero. You can't do that with your first $5,000. You just don't have enough money. So what you might have to do is start, do it incrementally. Don't try to get to fully diversified in one step. That way you can have your cake and eat it too. And so when you talk about buying an index, is that like you could buy a US index, you could buy a global index. It seems that the global would be more diversified. I mean, I think, you know, in a sense, you buy the S&P 500, you're buying a bunch of, global equities right so these are these might be listed in the u.s but you know 30 to 40 percent of the revenues come from the globe so many of the things you worried about different currencies different economies they're all taken care of so i would say just go simple go with the you know with the u.s equity index fund which is well diversified you're going to get a global exposure from it 
If you truly want to go to a global fund, you can, but many of them are not full index funds as samplings of indices because you can't own every single global stock. But I think just getting a U.S. index fund, even if it's the S&P 500, gets you 80% of the way there. Um, so I'm curious to ask, you know, I mentioned Bitcoin in, in the previous question, but I'm curious to ask for your latest and greatest opinion on it. Um, it's something that a lot of people in my audience care about and have money in. And a lot of my guests have been involved with, and obviously it's not something that you can evaluate from a value perspective, but um, if you look at it like a digital gold or something, you can think of it comparably to that, or you might look at it with some different analogy or some different scope. And I'm just curious how you viewed it and if that view has changed uh, or how it's changed in the last dozen or so years that it's uh, come around. It's a current, I mean, you've got to make, I mean, if you're a Bitcoin ad, you got to tell me what it is. It's either a currency or a collectible, right? And if it's a currency, it's not a very good currency from the perspective of you don't see too many transactions in Bitcoin because it's too volatile. If it's a collectible, which is what Larry Fink, I think, suggested yesterday, it's like, you know, digital gold. It's not behaved like a very good collectible. A good collectible goes up or holds its value and everything else is collapsing around it. That's what it's given gold its legendary status as a collectible. Over the last 14 years, the bulk of Bitcoin's existence, it's behaved like very risky stock. It does well when stocks do well or when risky assets do well. It does badly when they do badly. Maybe that'll change. I keep the door open to Bitcoin becoming a good collectible or a good currency, but it's not even moving in the right direction to get there. So that what that that's always been my skepticism about Bitcoin. It's a currency designed by the paranoid for the paranoid. It's designed by people who trust no one. That's that that's reflected in the way it's structured. And because you trust no one, it's not an efficient currency. That's what makes Bitcoin such a difficult currency to adopt. And as a collectible, I'm willing to give it you know a few more shots to see if it behaves like a good collectible. But so far, it's not doing that job. Is there something, uh, obviously, as we've talked about at length, you know, the future is unpredictable and um, you just have to sort of see things as they come. But is there something that would be foreseeable, such as, for example, um, correlation with the broader market uh, becoming not as clear or, or something that would convince you to, um, you know, take a harder look at Bitcoin and, and give it more credit, perhaps as a digital gold? Because if you look at it, if you sort of assign some probability that it could be that and you look at, you know, I don't know what it is as of today, but roughly 10 or 12x, I think, would be the market cap of gold versus uh, Bitcoin. And so you assign oh, it's it. A, say, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot more than that. I mean, gold is it's many factors higher than Bitcoin. I mean, here's the test. Let's wait for the next crisis. Let's see if Bitcoin goes up in value during the crisis. It's not done that in a single crisis in the last 14 years. You take the COVID crisis, you take the every meltdown. I've been looking at Bitcoin to see how it does. And so far, every crisis has behaved like stocks. It's gone down as stocks have gone down. It's gone up as stocks have recovered. So that's the test. Wait for the crisis, see if it holds its value. As I said, I'm leaving the door open that it could become a collectible. But so far, you know, no such luck. Right. And um, so I know we're coming up on time, maybe last couple of questions here, but um, and I appreciate all of the time that you're sharing and the perspective, but um, 
you've talked about Amazon and Tesla on other podcasts, and I don't want to be repetitive to those. I encourage people to go listen to all the podcasts you've been on. They're really great. Um, But um, Amazon, I think you've highlighted one of the big differences is it was sort of built from the beginning. Um, They've got patients in their DNA, uh, and it was built to outlive Bezos in terms of just consistently expand into new markets, build revenue. This was the field of dreams analogy I brought up earlier. They've sort of believed like if you build it in terms of the revenues, the profits will come. And it's the most feared company I think you said you've ever seen. Um, Now it is in a position where Bezos is not the active CEO. Um, What are your thoughts on the future there? Uh, And we don't need to contrast it to Tesla. I think the 80-20 on Tesla is that, and correct me if I'm wrong on this, but in summary, uh, it is very tied to Elon and it is not built to outlast him. And it's a very uncertain future that could go very hard in one way or the other. And maybe that's the nature of all the disagreement. But Amazon's a very different company at its core. And I'm curious to hear how you think it's positioned for you know, the future ahead now that Bezos actually, he's not just building it to outlast him, but it's now facing the test of lasting beyond him and succeeding. I think the biggest challenge for Amazon is regulatory and government, because I think in a sense, everybody's pulling for Amazon to fail. Because let's face it, if you're a competitive Amazon, whether you're Walmart or FedEx or even JP Morgan thinking about Amazon entering, Amazon around. So very few friends in business and they've made a lot of enemies in politics. So in a sense, the worst thing that Jeff Bezos probably ever did for Amazon is buying the Washington Post because it almost immediately made Amazon the center of a political debate. So I think in many ways, Amazon's biggest challenges lie in the regulatory and the government domain. They're very few friends in politics and business, which means if governments and regulators come after Amazon, nobody's going to step in and protect them. And that, I think, is the challenge for Amazon is how they navigate those challenges over the next decade will determine how well they do as a company. Right. So we've spent um, quite a bit of time on teaching and investing evaluation and, you know, various tangents off off of those things. But um, in closing, I'd love to ask you about just your uh, personal approach in day to day life. It's just like an interest of mine of how people sort of think about their time. And at the end of the day, you sort of uh, I at least think of investing my time as like sort of almost upstream, or at least sort of on par with how I invest my money. You said everything's sort of a financial decision at the end of the day. I think everything is also a time decision. So I'm curious if there's ways in which you spend your time, habits that you have, routines that you abide by. You're sort of a machine for like books and all of the work you put up publicly available on your website in terms of classes and everything like that. And uh, I'm curious if there's principles that drive the way that you live and the way that you invest your time. I tend, I tend not to think about markets and in my portfolio at all during the course of the day. I mean, think about friends and family and life in general. I mean, life's too short to be spending your time thinking about, hey, what did my portfolio do in the last 30 minutes? So I, you know, my suggestion is invest because it preserves and grows your wealth, but don't make investing the center of your life. No, it's not worth it. Awesome. Well, I think that's a, a great place to close. I appreciate you taking the time again. Where can people go? And, uh, you know, is there any latest class or book that you'd like to point people to read or to Twitter? What's the best place to go and take next steps on learning more about you for people who enjoyed this conversation? They can just go to my website, demodron.com. Pretty much everything I do is linked from there. My blog is also linked from there. And the blog is where I write, you know, whatever comes to my mind. I'm a dabbler by nature. 
So whatever interests me, I write about at that time. So uh, I would suggest using my website as the launching pad for anything they might be interested in. Awesome. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate the time. It was great talking with you. You're welcome. Take care.